You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Cubot infections are spreading. The bounty-hunting gig economy apparently has its first millionaire. Observers are liking what they see in U.S. Cyber Command's persistent engagement. Canada mulls the extradition of Huawei's CFO to the U.S. The U.S. continues to call Huawei a security risk, and Huawei has some things to say back. Dr. Dina Harito-Samides from Carnegie Mellon joins us to talk culture and what she's looking forward to at next week's RSA conference. And the Momo Challenge is a viral online craze, but not the way you may have heard. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 1st, 2019. Researchers at security firm Veronis are describing a major campaign to distribute QBot banking malware. QBot is polymorphic and has evolved continuously since its discovery in 2009. Veronis says thousands of machines are now under QBot's control. They've determined through observation of QBot's command and control server that infections have been found in Europe, Asia, and South America, and that U.S. corporations have come in for particular attention. Bug hunters may be viewed as the gig economy portion of the cybersecurity sector. Both HackerOne and BugCrowd have reports out on the subsector, and they say, understandably since they're in the business, that the sector is a healthy one, with bug hunters and bug bounty programs finding one another. One of the bug hunters associated with HackerOne has now earned more than a million dollars since he signed up with HackerOne in 2015. Santiago Lopez, 19 years old, self-taught, and a native of Argentina, earned his bounties by finding 1,670 unique bugs in various products. Congratulations to him. We wonder what Mr. Lopez's success, however, in finding flaws in software written by or for some very wealthy companies says about compensation in that gig economy. U.S. Cyber Command's action against Russian troll farms during the U.S. midterm election cycle has been receiving generally favorable reviews, with the Atlantic Council's Jason Healy offering a particularly enthusiastic one in Cypher Brief. It was, Healy says, a specific operation to stop a specific adversary from carrying out a particular operation. It wasn't deterrence and it wasn't signaling. It was, he writes, more like blocking a punch. An op-ed in Lawfare by Ben Buchanan sees the Cyber Command operation as giving some concrete form to what policymakers have called a strategy of persistent engagement and makes the case to policymakers that Cyber Command has something to offer. Buchanan concludes by writing, quote, In this sense, the operation might have more of a long-term impact in the United States than it did in Russia, clarifying the art of the possible might be the operation's real lasting success. End quote. 
Canada has just decided to proceed with an extradition hearing for Meng Wanzhou, Huawei's CFO. She's currently being detained in Vancouver, where a Canadian court will decide whether she's to be extradited to the U.S., where she will face charges related to money laundering and sanctions evasion. There's been no decision yet, but observers think it fairly likely that she'll eventually be turned over to American authorities. The U.S. shows no disposition to relent on its view of Huawei as a security threat. Secretary of State Pompeo is in Manila, and he's urging the Philippines in particular, because after all, he's in Manila, and the world as a whole should keep its eyes wide open about the security problem having Chinese gear in their infrastructure presents. Huawei has been defending itself on two fronts, with a mixture of sharp and soothing words. First is the legal front. The company has entered pleas of not guilty to U.S. charges of industrial espionage. And it's also saying that CFO Meng did nothing, nothing we tell you. Second, in response to U.S. and Australian insistence that its devices represent a security risk, it continues to deny vigorously that it effectively operates as an arm of Chinese intelligence services. The honeyed words come with the company's expressions of willingness to submit to collaborative vetting of its hardware with governments, mostly in Europe and the Five Eyes, who wish to see such reassurance. The sharper words come, as they so often do, in the form of tu quo que. The you did it too and you're another bounces off me and sticks to you, in this case comes courtesy of Huawei's rotating chairman, Guo Ping. What about all that U.S. NSA and Cyber Command stuff we keep hearing about? Huh? What about that? You're spying, too. He cites some of Mr. Snowden's reports as the basis for his complaint and goes so far as to point out that maybe the U.S. intelligence community has its nose out of joint because Huawei won't oblige them by putting U.S. backdoors into its equipment. And besides, Chairman Gao says, all this U.S. woofing is really about competition, not security. The Americans, he says, know they're being outcompeted, and they don't like it. In his words, quote, The global campaign against Huawei has little to do with security and everything to do with America's desire to suppress a rising technological competitor. End quote. Finally, consider the Momo challenge we've been hearing about, the one that's supposed to be inducing teens, tweens, and even younger Internet users to harm themselves. It's a real enough instance of a widespread, virally spread belief mania, but not in the way it seemed. Here's the claim. There are embedded video clips, illustrated by the big eyes distorted face of Momo, that have been inserted into otherwise innocent YouTube videos. Those embedded clips are said to challenge young people to harm themselves in progressively more dangerous ways, up to the point of suicide. And they're said to show them ways of carrying out their self-destruction, YouTube makes the right noises about taking children's safety seriously, but says it can't find any of the things people say they found. The Washington Post, Naked Security, and others have been looking for the videos, and they can't find them either. Naked Security calls the Momo Challenge a modern equivalent of a campfire-side horror story. It was discussed last summer as a haunted WhatsApp account that featured Momo's picture, it resurfaced in an English Facebook group a couple of weeks ago and rapidly entered public discourse over there as part of a larger discussion of content moderation fueled by Parliament's release of a report on fake news. So, there's really no Momo challenge, and no one's been able to find the victims who are said to have died taking it. 
The mania, then, isn't a viral craze to follow Momo, but a viral craze of fear that children are going to hurt themselves. Everyone can, we think, agree that suicide prevention is a serious and important matter, and who wouldn't want to protect children? But there are enough real things to worry about without the scary stories. So no Momo, and if you're warned about it in your Facebook group or via the email list you're on, tell people there's no epidemic of meme-driven suicide. There's enough online foolishness without creating more of it. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Awais, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to touch today on edge computing and some of the security challenges there. Uh, can we start off with just a description? What are we talking about when we say edge computing? So uh, edge computing, I suppose, is an extension of the Internet of Things world. We think of deploying a range of wireless uh, sensors and actuators, that can work in remote locations and provide all sorts of information back often through the cloud, but equally may be able to impact the surrounding surrounding environment. A good example of this would be, for example, in agricultural technologies where, you know, large-scale farms can use it for, uh, for crop management, for treatment uh, against particular types of 
uh, infections or particular types of insects or whatever. Another example would be, you know, remote monitoring of, um, say, large-scale pipelines and, and so on and so forth. And uh, some of these sensors can be very simple and not so powerful, and others can have some more computational resource within them. And, and so what are some of the specific challenges here, and how, uh, how do you propose uh, we address them? Well, how long is a piece of string? Is is is, is the question. There are uh, there are there are a number of challenges, you know, and there are the usual issues that when you have low computation power devices, how do you actually ensure that they can have the level of security that you would want to implement on those devices? The big challenge, of course, comes is the the remote nature of the uh, sensors and actuators themselves, because potentially attackers can have physical access to these devices uh, because they they cannot always be within a they, they will they're almost always never within a, a physically constrained environment the other challenge of course is how do you actually trust the data that mm. is coming from these devices uh, how do you actually demonstrate provenance of that data uh, how do you distinguish between what is an error due to just failure and an error due to uh, malicious interference with the device. Yeah, that's really a fascinating element of this to me, that the notion that you can have, a say, a remote sensor somewhere, uh, and if, if a hacker gets in there and causes it to send you false information about whether a, a valve is open or closed or something like that, well, that can be a, a potentially catastrophic problem. Yeah, absolutely. And the other, other challenge, of course, is that uh, depending on how the systems are architected, you can potentially enter through some of those devices and then pivot on to the more back-end systems in, the, in itself to move across to different parts of the system. I think the key here has to be that we have to have more effective uh, mechanisms for, uh, for provenance of these devices and the data that is coming uh, from these devices. And then sitting underneath are all sorts of challenges of having you know, effective access control models, effective, uh, you know, cryptographic techniques, uh, you know, low power cryptographic techniques, as well as, you know, uh, new types of, for example, intrusion detection and prevention systems that actually are uh, potentially based on data provenance and, and ways to actually verify that provenance in the, in the, in the first instance and authenticity of the device. And uh, so there, there is a range of challenges all the way from the underlying hardware, all the way up to the stack to algorithms that may process data from that in order to detect intrusions or prevent intrusions. Yeah, no, it's an interesting challenge. Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. The CyberWire is proud to be a media sponsor of the 2019 RSA Conference, taking place March 4th through the 8th at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Today, we welcome Dr. Dina Harido Semitis, member of the 2019 RSA Conference Advisory Board and director of the Information Networking Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. We've done a lot. So um, as director of the Information Networking Institute, I've been director since 2004, and I was associate director previously. And when I first started, we only had 6% women in, in my graduate programs. And it forced me to really look at what possibly could be the reason for that. So I looked into the research of my colleagues, Lenore Bloom and Carol Fries, who are in the computer science department. And they found, their findings suggest that culture plays a huge role in being able to um, attract women in particular to computer science and information technology programs. 
based upon their recommendations. I took a look at our culture, addressed many of the cultural issues that I thought were perhaps barriers, but also, and very importantly, I was very proactive in building partnerships with organizations that are focused on attracting women, retaining women, developing women and underrepresented minorities so that my students could engage with them. Um, Through these partnerships, I've established fellowships and scholarships for women and underrepresented minorities. I've established mentoring programs, a number of initiatives to, again, not only attract women to the program and underrepresented minorities, but help retain them and develop them and nurture them and inspire them while they're students in my program and um, as they go on to the field to later become leaders. And and the great thing that I've seen happen um, is that many of these alumni who've been a part of, of these partnership programs with organizations um, have gone onto the field and be leaders in the area. Um, one important initiative that I created was uh, Women at INI that we fondly call Winnie. It's an organization with the mission of helping attract, retain, nurture, and inspire our students in the program, but also to build this network that our students can have um, as they go on to the field and stay connected with the INI. And I've seen that the leaders of each class have taken the lessons that they've learned and the inspiration that they felt, and they've gone on to create organizations and and employee research groups in the organizations they serve. Uh, One student who graduated maybe 12 years ago went on to create such an organization in Apple. And and how do you measure success? How has it been going? Well, it's been going well, because when I started in 2002, we had 6% women, and our last incoming class was well over 40% women. We don't even look at retention rates because it's very rare for a student not to graduate who's entered the program because we've made a huge investment into our admissions criteria. So we've been very successful and effective in uh, selecting students, admitting students who will be successful in our program. We've done a lot. We've made a huge investment in developing this pipeline. But there's more work to be done. And I'm talking about graduate programs, pipeline into graduate programs. But when we think about undergraduate students, you know, the pipeline is K through 12. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the RSA conference uh, that's coming up next week. Um, You are a member of the RSA conference advisory board. I'm wondering, uh, what are you looking forward to uh, with this uh, week to come? Well, I'm looking forward to uh, a number of initiatives that uh, are going to take place. Uh, One in particular I am very invested in is the RSA Scholars Program. Uh, I think this was launched about five years ago, and uh, the RSA Scholars Program uh, brings in students from across the country to present their research in a poster session to conference attendees. And in addition, these RSA scholars have access to, um, well, they get a free registration for the conference. Their travel is supported, their travel and accommodations, but they get to interact with the keynote speakers. Um, They have VIP seating. They're invited to lunches and dinners with the speakers. And it just gives them such an amazing 
access to the network, the cybersecurity network, and exposure to a breadth of companies and organizations. And um, it's, it's a really special program. And I've seen um, in these years since we've been involved, we were the first institution to get involved, how they've strengthened the program and ensured that the schools represented were diverse, the topics are diverse, and it's it's really, I, I think, a, a, a gem there that I, I would love to create awareness about that, you know, because I'd like to see these students supported by um, conference attendees. You know, I, I encourage all the conference attendees to attend the poster presentation and get to know these students. You know, these are great students to hire. Universities can see them as prospective PhD students or graduate students. So, um, but they're they're amazing talent with great potential, and um, I'm, like I said, I'm very proud of it, and I'm very much looking forward to that. We have four students going this year, and then I've seen uh, in the conference program a number of presentations that do focus on diversity and and how to develop the pipeline. There's an, another session that talks about creating uh, one of my good friends, Joyce Brocaglia, as well as a colleague here from Carnegie Mellon University, Bobby Stemfley, are presenting on presentation uh, techniques for uh, women in the field. Um, so there are a number of, of exciting topics that are integrated throughout the conference that are part of this diversity initiative that RSA has invested a lot of time and effort in and has received a lot of feedback from their advisory board on. So I'm really looking forward to see how it plays out. And I'm sure that conference attendees will, will notice this, will take note. That's Dr. Dina Haridos-Samitis. She's director of the Information Networking Institute and founding director of Education, Training, and Outreach at Scilab at Carnegie Mellon University. She's also an advisory board member of RSA Conference. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.